Now may I say how I greatly appreciate being here over the conference weekend at Midland Park. We have looked forward to it and we have prayed very especially for God's blessing. And I myself personally have profited from the ministry of my, of my dear brethren, bringing before me thoughts that I had not seen before. That's the wonder and fullness and variety, isn't it, of the Word of God. I want, please, to read from four passages of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Two in John's Gospel and one in the book of Revelation. John chapter 13, please. Verse 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Verse 25. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Chapter 19, please. And verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. I like to think that there are four persons, four women here, and they form the believing part and would be a contrast, I'm sure, to the four soldiers. You can contrast the four women in verse 25 with the four hardened soldiers at the cross. Now they stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Now, the book of Revelation, please. Chapter 1. Just for connection, verse number 16, chapter 1, verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. The last chapter of the book of Revelation, please. Chapter 22. Verse 20. He which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Amen. 
Even so, come, Lord Jesus. God, I'm sure, will bless these portions of his good word. We count on him for his help. In these sections, beloved, of the word of God, which we've read together, we have four scenes. Indeed, four attitudes of the Apostle John. John 13, we see the head of John on the bosom of Christ. And of course, not only that, but the feet of John beside the cross of Christ. Then in Revelation chapter 1, we have the whole body of John prostrate at the feet of Christ. Revelation 22, we have John's heart lifted up to the person of the Lord Jesus. Let us put it another way. In John 13, we see the Lord Jesus leaning on the bosom of Christ. In John 19, we see the Lord Jesus in his crucifixion we see John lingering at the cross of Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, we see John lying at the feet of Christ. In Revelation 22, we have John longing for the coming of Christ. John then leaning on his bosom, lingering at the cross, lying at the feet of our Lord Jesus, Longing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 13, we have him leaning on the bosom of Christ. What a posture! What a place! Often John is referred to, isn't he, by Christians as the man of the bosom. He listened, we might well say, to the very heartbeats of the Son of God. He loved to be in this place, in intimate fellowship and communion with the Lord Jesus. It was, we may say, his habit to be there. John hadn't just, especially in John 13 in the narrative, put himself in that place. He just loved to be there every time. What do we know about this? Leaning on the bosom of Christ. Fellowship, intimate communion with the Lord Jesus is of paramount importance. And in these crowded days of Russian bustle, we seem to spend less and less time in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what I was thinking? Very often there was a competitive spirit between the disciples. But none, none of the other disciples said to John, move aside. Let me come where you are. Let me have a few moments with the Master. Let me lean my head upon his breast. Give me an opportunity. Never. 
There's no record of it anyway. Isn't it delightful to think of the Apostle John leaning in the bosom of Christ? What about fellowship with Christ? What about the spiritually day by day in our experience? Do we spend time with the Lord? Do we discipline our lives sufficiently to enjoy intimately his presence? The warmth of it, the sweetness of it, the reality of it. How many days, how many weeks do we leave the house having never read the word of God, having never spent a few moments in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? Need you wonder, need we wonder, at our spiritual coldness, our worldliness, how sad it is. That's why decline enters in. What a position for John. Leaning in the bosom of Christ. You know there are three things, very simple things that I enjoyed and I pass them on to you. First of all, in John 13, we have the importance of cleansing. The Lord Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Cleansing. Then we have communion. John leaning in the bosom of Christ. Then we have communication because we have a concern. Who is it that is going to betray the Lord? And Peter would seem with a loud whisper, say to him, ask him, ask him, ask him. It's the man or the believer most intimate with Christ and that enjoys fellowship with him will receive communications from the Lord. There's a moral, spiritual order here that must not be missed, simple as it is. Before ever we can have communion and enjoy fellowship with the Lord, we need to be cleansed. We need to know the effective cleansing effect of the Word of God upon our lives and conscience and heart. This is a very necessary, paramount, important Prerequisite, we can't enjoy communion in any way unless we have experienced cleansing. Cleansing, communion, and how, my dear brother and sister and young believer, can we expect to receive communication from the Lord and understand his will and get to know his word, what he wants us to do? Unless we're having communion with him. I think it was John Nelson Darby that said, I dread great activity without great communion. How true. If you're active for the Lord, thank God. If you were Sunday school, a task in the Sunday school to play, a work to do, if you are presently engaged in some work for the Lord, you tell him all about it? Do you enjoy fellowship with the Lord before you go out in this work or get involved in this work? Very important. What a lovely position for John. He would never, never forget these blessed seasons of personal, intimate fellowship with Christ, his Master and Lord. 
Too many of us, maybe including me, are too satisfied to have a surface relationship with Christ. We don't know his presence. We're not enjoying his communion. There's something really wrong, radically wrong. We need spiritual adjustment to see what are the priorities of Christian life. For John 13, we see John Neenan and the bosom of Christ. What about me? What about you? Are you missing out? Are you losing out? Christianity is not merely activities, more than that. There's a difference, isn't there, between activity and spirituality. We can be very, very active and yet far from spiritual. We can go through the procedure and, and uh, we might say the machinery of active work and yet we're not enjoying communion. We're doing it, we're going through it. And our brothers have no idea that we're away in thought. That we're not enjoying the Lord as we should. Oh God, give us John's blessed experience. May find an answer in our own lives, a correspondence in our own lives. May we feel individually, is this what's wrong with me, with you? Why are you not making progress? Why are you not enjoying the word of God as once well you did? Why the world is making such an impact upon you and appeals to you more than ever it did? When you were first converted, there was nothing you wouldn't be prepared to do for the Lord. And now, that's all gone. Please discipline your life, child of God. With the unsaved man, Christ has no place. With the carnal man, Christ has a place. But with a spiritual man, Christ has the place. Does Christ have the supreme place in your life, in my life? It's paramount. It's a, it's a prerequisite. We simply must discipline our lives so that we're not missing out in this way. And take time, as the hymn says, to be holy. May we know what it is to be leaning on the bosom of Christ. Lovely. Then I thought, not only was John leaning on the bosom of Christ, but I thought of John. How, how touching. Lingering by the cross of Christ. We're moving from the privacy now of the upper room where the world and the public would not know too much of anything at all what was going, what's going on. We move now from the privacy of the upper room to, to openly beside the cross. John's in the outside position. The crowd is there, the soldiers are there. The cruelty, the shouting, the crying. The word that is used standing indicates that he'd been standing there for some time and you must have witnessed quite a lot. Thank God for John not only leaning on the bosom of Christ, but lingering at the cross of Christ. Do we linger at the cross of Christ? Do we make much of the cross of Christ in our lives? What does it mean to us? 
Can I tell a young believer this afternoon? The term, the death of Christ, is a little different from the cross of Christ. The death of Christ fits a man for heaven. Does it? But the cross of Christ makes him a stranger in this world. What about the truth of the cross? Now we stand in by the truth of the cross and all that it means. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 verse 14 says, God forbid that I should glory, except, listen, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. What a difference the cross of Christ in its meaning and power and influence had upon the life of Paul. To him the cross stripped the world of its glory, robbed it of its power. What about us? The world didn't care a pin for Paul. But I want to say this. Paul never cared a pin for the world. He never allowed worldliness to creep in and affect his service for God. I fear there's too much worldliness among us. Robbing us of progress. We've got to live in this world and rub shoulders with the ungodly. We know that. We need to get back to the word of God. Indeed, we need to get back to the cross of our Lord Jesus. I notice, and pass this on to you, I notice in Galatians 6 there are three mark-scarred men. There's the Jewish legalist who has submitted to circumcision. And a false Jewish party was trying to threaten the Christians at Galatia. Trying to tell them, your Christianity is not perfect or complete unless you keep the law of Moses, unless you are circumcised. No, says Paul. That's wrong. So first of all, we have the circumcised man. The marks of circumcision upon his flesh. The legalist. circumcised man. Then in verse 14 we have blessed be his name, the crucified man. Will he bear forever, eternally? What a thought this is. The marks of Calvary upon his person? Yes. How touching that is. We will never be allowed by God to forget the debt we owe to Christ and his cross work and suffering and shedding of his precious blood. It'll never be before us in scenes of bliss and glory. Yes, the circumcised man. Verse 13 of Galatians 6. But verse 14, the crucified man. The legality of the circumcised man. The love of the crucified man. But we travel down those verses and before Paul finishes the letter and the chapter to Galatians. He speaks of himself. Do you remember his words? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The circumcised man, he's marked. Ritualistically. Legally. But didn't count for God. Christ was not in it. The circumcised man. Then again I say thank God for the crucified man. Galatians 6 verse 14. And his love to us 
So when we come to almost the end of the epistle, we listen to the great language of Paul. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul considered himself to be the slave of Christ. To be the slave of men is the most miserable thing on earth, but to be the, to be the slave of God, of Christ, is the most blessed thing on earth. Paul had marks to show of his devotion and loyalty to Christ. What are we to show? May not be that our bodies have been buffeted, or marked, or pierced, or beaten like Paul. Says C.T. Studd, the great missionary of the last century, English famous cricketer, got converted. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and die for me, then no sacrifice should be too great for me to make for him. Ponder the significance and the message of these three marked men, these three scarred men in Galatians 6. The ritualist, the Jew, his circumcision. Our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, his crucifixion. What a crucifixion. What a death to die. How awful. The shame he experienced. The legality of the circumcised man. The love of the perfect man, our Lord Jesus Christ. The loyalty of such a devoted man like the Apostle Paul. Are we standing by the cross? John did this literally, physically, but I'm thinking of spiritually, in our lives. Are we standing by the truth of the cross? Are we, are we manifesting that in our lives? Are we challenging thoughts and questions? You know, the cross is mentioned in Galatians 6, of course. No legalism at the cross. That's the context. But come to Colossians. The blood of his cross. Colossians 1. In Christ, says Paul, in chapter 3, verse 11, all earthly, religious, national, civil, Social distinctions are completely stripped, eclipsed. Christ is all. No legality of the cross as far as the Lord was concerned. And also no nationalism. Go to see the Korean brethren and other brethren from different countries. We're in Christ. What a blessing. The moment nationalism creeps into the assemblies and among the Lord's people, it can be such a hindrance to progress and indeed unity. Thank God for our dear brethren and our suffering brethren too in China, all over the world. Our hearts are with them. We're one with them. No legalism at Calvary. No nationalism at Calvary. But then, in Philippians we read chapter 2, our blessed Lord was obedient even unto the death of the cross. There's no egotism at the cross. No egotism. Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. He was obedient even unto the death of the cross. How selfless the Lord Jesus was. 
He did not project his person or self. He was humble unto death. Thought of that over the weekend. These are challenging things. No legalism. No nationalism. No egotism. How much of self is in my life? How much of self really, if the truth were known, is put forth in the work of the Lord that even our brethren do not see? Oh, let us be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. John leaning on the bosom of Christ. John lingering by the cross of Christ. Come with me to Revelation 1. What a vision. Every part of that vision, of course, is referred to in the Lord's messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. Some particular aspect of his person or what is mentioned in the vision is applied and communicated to certain churches. That tells us that Christ alone is sufficient. He's the answer to assembly problems and troubles. We need like the days of 2 Kings 4, Elisha, when there was death in the pot. What did Elisha say? Bring meal, bring meal. We must wisely bring in Christ in assembly problems and difficulties. What says Christ on this? Is this going to glorify him? Am I pushing my own ideas? Forcing my own thoughts upon the brethren? No. The impact of that vision will never be forgotten by John. Here he is now, not leaning, not lingering at the cross, but lying. This is a good position. Lying at the feet of Christ. In adoration and worship. Listen. The hand of the Lord touches him. The right hand of the Lord. I notice, and John doesn't stop to explain this, that when the vision is uh, described, the vision that John saw, it tells us, in his right hand, the right hand of the Lord, was seven stars. He controls his servants. He controls his ministry. But they were in his right hand. And I, I, I said to myself simply, how can the Lord hold in his hand, right hand, these stars? And yet at the same time, listening, draw near to John and put his right hand upon him. As I said, we need to read the word of God. John doesn't make a mistake about any physical difficulty about that. He doesn't stop to explain that. But we've got to understand the little lesson the Lord is not too occupied and not too busy with his church. As not able to draw near to every individual child of God and reassure them, put his hand upon us and say, fear not. I am he that was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. What a wonderful miracle the resurrection is. What a lovely vision John has. He's cut off from the mainland, not able to break bread with the brethren. This vision takes place, as we know, from verse 10 of chapter 1 of Revelation. 
On the Lord's Day. What a Lord's Day was for John. What a Lord's Day. He would never forget it. He must have solely missed the gathering of the Lord's people in the midnight. Had the Lord forgotten him? No. Fear not. Fear not. I am alive forevermore. Thank God for the truth and the power and the miracle and the doctrine of the resurrection, the fact of it. And John tells us, is it John? They set a watch, Matthew, particularly. They set a watch to guard the tomb. And I understand that a watch, a Roman watch, was between 70 to 100 men. You take the least figure, the least number. You try to imagine this afternoon, 70 strong, trained, disciplined, live soldiers trying to keep one dead man dead, and they failed. That great? They failed. I was enjoying in Revelation 1 a trilogy of gems concerning the Lord Jesus. It must have been a tremendous cheer and encouragement to John in his isolation and imprisonment on, on the Isle of Patmos. Three things concerning the Lord Jesus in Revelation 1. He loveth. Verse 5. I know it says he loved us, but it's really in the continued sense. He loveth us. He loveth. Then down to the end of the chapter, as we refer to it already, he liveth. He liveth. Back to verse 7, he cometh. Every eye shall see him. Oh, think of his perpetual love. Think of his powerful resurrection. He liveth. Think of his personal return. He cometh. Don't you think there, there are three gems? Would you dare to say to me this afternoon, that wouldn't help, John? That would be wrong, wouldn't it? I am sure that John was sustained and greatly encouraged in his isolation and his difficulty and trials and suffering for the Lord whom he loved that these three gems touching the person of the Lord Jesus must have been a delight to him, a solace to him, an uplift and comfort to him, a tremendous incentive to him. He loveth. Thank God he does. It's a love that will continue for eternity and never wane and never stop and never fail. Isn't that lovely? How precious. We're going to be the unique special objects of the love of Christ forever. He loveth. He liveth. He cometh. The countenance of the Lord Jesus is described in Revelation 1 as the sun shining in its strength. Outside of the dark world, we might say outside this building and outside the confines of an assembly, there is darkness, morally and spiritually, but inside the sunshine. Why? Because the Lord is there. The Lord is with us. Will you remember these things and carry them away with you and let them motivate and influence and challenge your life as it has mine? Four attitudes of John leaning on his bosom. Leaning on the bosom of Christ. Leaning on the cross of Christ. Lying at the feet of Christ. 
and then Revelation 23. The last prayer of the Bible, the last promise of the Bible. Surely I come quickly. Certainty was coming. The personality was coming. The rapture. Surely I come. The actuality was coming. Surely I come quickly. The recurrence was coming. Please don't treat the Lord's coming, the moment of the rapture, as some distant event. I can almost feel his footsteps or hear his footsteps on the threshold of the door. My heart, my heart is longing to be with him evermore. John's head, John's feet, John's, John's body, now John's heart. Forty years at least have gone by since the Lord lived and died and rose again and went to heaven. At least forty years since John saw him last. How he loved his Lord and Master. How he owed so much to him. He's no old man now, but his heart lives up to his Saviour. He says, even so, come Lord Jesus. What a promise. How great. The Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, finishes with such a promise. It's the rapture. The rapture will be pre-tribulation in its order. The church is not going to go through the tribulation. Jesus is the deliverer, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, from the coming wrath, the dispensation of wrath. I trust we believe in the pre-millennial, pre Yes, premillennial return of the Lord Jesus. The personal premillennial return of Christ. The rapture will be pre-tribulationary. It will be sudden in its experience. That's how the disposition began, Acts 2, verse 1. Suddenly, as a mighty rushing wind, the Holy Spirit came in. This dispensation of the church and the grace of God started suddenly. It will end suddenly. Sudden in its occurrence, miraculous in its outworking. My, it would be lovely to have had the time to touch in the different miracles that would take place in the rapture. Finally, what a thought. It would be reunited in its object. Caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Loved ones that have gone before in Christ. No one will be missing. Do you believe the Lord could come at any moment? Is it the truth that you keep before you? John's heart was longing for the Savior to come. What about our hearts? Well, Lord, it's just not yet. I believe in my coming, but I've got this to do and the other to do. And I'd like to get married first. Oh, no. Are you waiting for the Son of God from heaven? In a recent purchase of the Bible, the big print, so I can see better. This Oxford Biblical Bible, there's the thickness of the page. India paper. I wouldn't, do you listen, I wouldn't put the thickness of this one page of India paper in my Bible between now and the possibility my Lord could come. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Does the thought of the Lord's coming, the rapture, the event of the rapture, Fill us, motivate us, 
comfort us, challenge us, that we show that belief in our lives. I leave this with you. I trust God is in it. I trust Christ will be glorified. I have asked you very simply to consider these four attitudes of the dear Apostle John. We can learn from them. Whether we think of him leaning or lingering or lying or longing, we have lessons to learn. May something of the desire of the Apostle John, something of which he gave priority to, such experiences of Christ in his life, may we, in our little way, share in these, enjoy these. May the Lord be pleased to bless his word to all our hearts. Amen.